Countercast. My name's Kat Boyd and I'm joined by lovely co-host, whom I have missed very much, David Jameson. Hi, David. Hello. It's good to, good to have you back uh, in the lovely sunshine as well. It's You've been a while away, of course, because you were uh, hosting our uh, election show. I was hosting the election show and then, then I just kind of like took a month off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> after the election um yeah so it is nice to be back but also like the first show back the first podcast back is always going to be a bit of a it feels like a hurdle if I'm being honest I just need to get it out of the way <laughs> <laughs> there you go audience you are here to get it out of the way uh but no I mean I it was very romantic yeah but I'd I just feel very out of practice, very rusty. I don't know what I think about politics anymore. I feel like everything is probably shit. Um, but I'm not really like, my brain hasn't like heated up enough to generate any analysis. That makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Because it was like, it was a, it was a fucking weird election as well. Because, I mean, obviously you were doing that show. That was quite intensive. Like, um, to do like a show like that every week and, and all the prep that goes into it and so on um, so it was like the run up to the election was quite intense and then the actual election was like it, it, it was like everything went into slow motion first of all it took days for all the results to come out yeah. and when they did come out the picture was one of just total status state status nothing had moved No, no. Uh, after all that uh, after, after you know, the, all the kind of uh, rush and noise of the election, is just the exact same situation has has uh, reproduced itself. That's the fascinating thing about it is like the more things change, the more things stay the same, right? So since twenty sixteen, uh, an election in which I do remember but barely because I stood as a candidate and I'm absolutely fucking traumatized by that entire experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, but since 2016, so much has happened. So you've had Brexit, you've had global pandemic. Um, there's been a, a whole array of policy failures on the SNP's part, like the drugs deaths and um, education. And um, I mean, what else is there? This is what I mean about my brain being slow, but... <laughs> Loads of policy failures um, on the government's part, loads of targets missed, um, promises not kept, things kicked into the long grass, um, e.g. independence. Also, just shout out to um, SNP supporters or members who are listening. Where's the money, Peter Morell? <laughs> <laughs> I, but I mean, but, but you know, so like you've had all these major things. That's before you even get into the scandals of the SNP, like the, the salmon stuff, right? So being able to like come out of this period of huge political turbulence, political, social, economic turbulence, to have almost exactly the same result as you did in twenty sixteen really says something about the state of Scottish politics. But but I think it also says something about the state of politics more broadly because um, I mean think about the Tories think about it from their end right 
So they came in within a weak coalition government in 2010, instantly embarked upon this massively destructive project of austerity that lasted the entire decade uh, and in some respects is still ongoing. Um, so, and, and yet here, here, you know, in 2019, at the end of that decade of, of austerity, uh, they won this huge majority that seems to have dealt like a mortal blow to the Labour Party. Um, I mean, I, I think that that's, I, I think it's meaningful. I think it's meaningful that you've ended up with this huge Tory hegemony in England and a huge SNP hegemony in Scotland, and also a, a remaining kind of uh, Labour hegemony in Wales, which has also weathered uh, all kinds of storms. Partly that's about the immediate context of the pandemic, right? That it seems to have stabilised everything. Yeah. Like people don't want to uh, kick out a government that has uh, that's, that seems to be finally on top of the pandemic. But more than that, I think it's it's like it's the consequence of anti-politics. It's the consequence of like most of the anger directed at governments in and i'm talking about like across the west today and beyond um takes that kind of anti-politics format takes that kind of they're all in it together all the politicians are the same all the politicians are corrupt um it's very hostile to kind of like an ideological discourse or or anything like that and it's kind of inevitable when when there's such a heightened suspicion and such an animosity towards the entire political system, what you end up with is a really, really stable kind of techno-populist force in power everywhere. So the SNP are at once the Liberal Centre, and they have this kind of populist appeal. And the Tories managed to get the same thing somehow. Uh, They managed to get this kind of, they're at once the the establishment and the anti-establishment. And they've just permanently consolidated. I mean, the weird fucking thing now is in 2021, you look at both Holyrood and Westminster, it's hard to imagine a change of government. I mean, it is. It is hard to imagine. However, what I will say is that um, anything is anything is actually possible. I mean, let's let's remember, like, this is 2021, right? Imagine 10 years ago someone telling you that Labour is wiped out in Scotland. I mean, that is, we could not conceive of something like that um, at that time. So in the space of 10 years, we've had this really drastic, like uprooting of the traditional party of um, the kind of like Scottish working and middle class, like um, completely replaced. Um, by the SNP I mean it's 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 phenomenal like and I think that it's hard to get a a sense of perspective on just how significant that change is going to be I still think it's one of the most important changes in Scottish politics is this like rooting out of the Labour Party like right at its historic base within Scotland and what the consequences of that are going to be far beyond the, the constitutional question and um, so whilst it's unimaginable to think of a different party in government either in, in Holyrood or in Westminster, at the same time I'm like everything <laughs> everything can change. Um, you know, with uh yeah. Sorry, that was a that was a, a 
charmingly unfinished thought there. No, but I, I mean, I, I think that you're right though to talk about this this idea of like the the anti politics and the techno populist solutions. What I find like so deeply uninspiring about Holyrood right now is, firstly, I think that there is a. I I feel like the the independence movement is now like in such a like, um, like a kind of decline. It's a very low point for the movement. So it's very fractured and splintered. I think that there's no sense of like any type of dynamic movement, like anti-austerity or anything like that out in out there in Scotland. Like we've had Ken Muir Street. Um, but I think that that has to be seen in the context of like an action rather than a movement like that is changing like the way that like people relate to politics in its entirety. Um, so I feel like there isn't really this, I feel like the movement has suffered a significant blow by the re-election of the status quo in Scotland. Um, and that, I don't know, it's been replaced by a sense of like, I don't know if you get this, but like this kind of like pragmatic policy thing where it's like, hey, we've got solutions, guys. Like that kind of sense. And I'm like, I don't know. I just, I'm sorry, but you can't fix all the social problems in Scotland with a fancy fucking policy. Like people need a sense of agency. They need a sense of dignity. It, policies aren't going to fix questions of ownership and control. Like, when are politicians going to start understanding this? That you can have all the woo, great ideas in the whole world, but how does that differentiate you from any other of the parties that are tinkering around the edges of, like, capitalism's decline? It doesn't. And also, I mean, many of the policies are um, hilarious. I mean, one of the good things about doing the election show was that, you know, it kind of forced us to take the manifestos seriously and, and pick through them. And what you found is there's just there's just nothing there. I mean, there's really nothing there. The, the SNP's manifesto to me was hilarious because it's a list of non-policies. I mean, a national care service that turns out, I mean, it's supposed to sound like an NHS it's not, it's not a national care service. It's just a little bit more oversight over the existing system, right? I'd be very interested, by the way, to see even how many people that ends up employing. I think it's going to, I think there's a good chance it's going to be an office somewhere. That's going to be the national totally. care service. Totally. Well, see, I used to have this, um, I used to have this, like, a toy set as a kid, right? And it was like, I don't know if it was supposed to encourage children to become fucking town planners or some bullshit, right? But it was basically like a rug that was like had loads of like roads and streets on it. And in the box, there was like cardboard facades of shops, right? So there was no actual shop. You couldn't go inside the shop. It would be like little miniature shop fronts. So you'd have like the bookshop, the newsagents, the supermarket, the fucking poodle parlor, whatever, right? But they were just fronts. The doors did not open and there was no substance behind them. That's how I see the SNP's entire political outlook, is that they are setting up shop fronts saying, look at our big shiny policy here, but actually you try and open the door and there's just nothing there. It's painted on. You also see this phenomenon on building sites. You know when they're trying to like build something in the city centre and they don't want it to look like a shithole, so they paint a picture <laughs> of like windows <laughs> on the billboards covering the, the site. 
hello, that's, that is what like things like the National Care Service are gonna be. It's drawings of what society could look like should anyone actually want to embark on a project of redistribution of wealth and power. Yeah, no, absolutely. So every, everything has, um, every policy from the SNP has national in it because national sounds muscular. Right. It sounds like it sounds like old type social democracy. Do you know what I mean? Everything's a national this and a national that. People think that's a nationalist thing. Like they just want to brand everything with Scotland. I, I think it's it just makes it sound like really aggressive, like something like, like Attlee would do a Nybevan or something. Right. But it's just like you say, it's just a series of empty short fronts, the National Care Service, you know, a national investment bank that's got about 20 quid in it. <coughs> There's, um, uh, what else was there? Oh man, this the, the the one I love because it explains Scottish politics instantly to anyone who doesn't know anything about it. The UK government has this scheme for free ports, right? Part of it's kind of laissez-faire post-Brexit turn, although that as well, you know, is as much in the in the messages in the as in actuality. Anyway, they've set up a bunch of these free ports in English cities. Now the Scottish government says that it's against Freeports, despite the fact that an SNP council in Dundee sought to apply for one of these Freeport stays, anyway, um, so they said they were against it because obviously it's you know it's uh, they're like anti-tariff tax breaks, etc. These Freeports, and uh, there were concerns about workers' rights and so on. So the SNP decided they were going to launch their own thing called Green Ports. <laughs> Now, green ports are the same thing, right? <laughs> they are just like, you know, tax-free, you know, uh, uh, trading ports and in, in either like seaports or in airports. Um, except, I don't know, they're going to have a fucking Save the Whales badge stuck on them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, uh, exactly what you mean. It's the, it's the, um, the National Green Port Service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the National Greenport Service. Yeah, um, a little bit of a little bit Atley, little bit of uh, Greenpeace, um, but in reality, of course, it's just another tax breaks type scheme. Yeah. Um, and and there's a host of other ones. I mean, uh, the the four day week is hilarious. I mean, the number of people who I saw saying that set were looking at a four-day week now in Scotland I'm after sorry, the election. A four-day four week, right? I think, of course, it's an idea that's like now ready. Like it is so possible to do this. Like the pandemic has proved that. I do actually think that the big battle for trade unions is going to be around working time. Like that's actually what the battle is going to be about now. Like not to say that pay isn't important, of course it is, but it's going to be a, a battle over the working day because what the pandemic has done is forced people to, myself included, to reappraise what it is that really matters. People want to spend time with their families. They want to like, you know, engage in like social activities. That's what people value, right? And that's kind of a lot of that stuff was snatched away by the pandemic. So that's where the battle's going to be. But 10 million quid that i mean i'm sorry <laughs> that gets you jack shit 10 million quid doesn't touch the edges of what is needed to transform the world of work after a global pandemic so i mean that was just 10 million quid to buy headlines ahead of an election 
Um, Oregon. Um, not that, not apparently that it was needed. I don't know that the SNP would have needed to to pledge anything. Well, it was it was voted for at their conference, right? Um, yeah, I can't recall. I mean, not not that that necessarily binds the SNP leadership to anything. <laughs> and again, um, just return to a favourite theme of ours: re the SNP is. Um, I just can't wait till there's a leadership challenge from Kate Forbes. Well, um, so this is interesting that the during the election, I missed this, but Nicholas Sturgeon was asked um, who might who her successor might be, and she's talking openly now about who her successor is going to be. Right? She's yet another indication if you needed one, someone who's about to fight an independence referendum doesn't talk about who their successor is going to yeah. be. You can't do that, right? So anyway, anyway. We all know that. Hamza Youssef and Kate Forbes were the people she mentioned, right? And then she, she didn't mention Angus Robertson, right? But that might indicate that Angus Robertson is, of course, the, the shoe-in. But between those two people, who's more qualified? Hamza Youssef, like, has been around a bit longer, but is generally, like, he's been associated with a few fuck-ups, right? Kate Forbes hasn't really. Kate Forbes, of course, is the, uh, well, you know, my slogan, elect the elect. She elect is the, the she's the free church of Scotland option. Uh, Scotland returning to the cuck. <laughs> and I honestly just find her utterly compelling as a politician, as a political figure. Did you read that interview in the BBC? No, did she, she starts talking about her faith in that because she hasn't. That's like so, I mean, the thing is, she's a young woman in politics. So I'm not saying that there aren't already people in politics who have very fervent religious beliefs. There are, they, they do exist. But I think that Kate Forbes seems to sort of break the mold on what people would expect. Um, and there's this, I mean, remarkable interview in the BBC where she says, you know, I think the headline is something about like her feeling that she has to tiptoe around her faith but um, in the body of the article, there's some, I mean, incredible quotes. Um, this line where she says something like, um, politics will pass. I was a person before a politician and that person will continue to believe they are made in the image of God. And I'm just like, see if you, see if you when you have faith like that, like your political opponents cannot touch you. Mm. Do you know what I mean? They can't touch, like, you are probably able to withstand all sorts of criticism and things like that. Do you know what I mean? So there's just this real directness that, um, you know, well, something not see eye to eye with her, I found incredibly refreshing. Yeah, I mean... Um... Especially because, uh, do you know what I find interesting about it? Is that it really jars with this kind of new Labour-esque SNP obviously New Labour's whole we don't do God thing was like a big part of their identity as a, as a party. And I think that that's actually like Alistair Campbell did say that we don't do religion. And, and there was all, all the stuff about like Tony Blair's like conversion after he was PM and all that. So, I mean, I, I feel like she really like kind of jars against that, that part of the SNP and obviously has like quite socially conservative personal views which again is like almost in contradiction with some aspects of sturgeonism 
We'll see. We'll see, though. I mean, this is what's interesting. So, so Tony Blair's turn to Catholicism infamously involved involved a separation. I mean, sorry, secularization isn't just there's more atheists, right? Uh, Scotland's obviously now a very secular society in the sense that people are able to separate out their religious from their public and official convictions. So that's what Tony Blair said. We you know when he was when he was challenged on, well, why didn't your Catholic views intercede into your political life? And he was like, well, because I separated them. Now, what will be interesting to see with Kate Forbes is if she does the same thing as she has up to now, right? Separated her religious faith from her politics. And she, in that quote that you supplied, she sounded like she was doing it. She sounded like she was saying, um, oh, look, politics is one thing, but underneath all that crap, right? Underneath all that uh, ephemeral material stuff, there's my, me, my being created in the image of God. And that's a, a more profound and a separate thing, right? Um, whereas, of course, hundreds of years ago, someone of a Calvinist bent would not have done that. They would have said, you know, they would have fought wars for their religion. They would have, every, every aspect of public administration would have been guided by those religious beliefs, by the Bible and, and, and so on. Now, obviously, that's impossible in a modern context, right? Because, um, because you know, John Knox in Scotland did the same thing that Calvin did. He like he tried to create the perfect Christian community. <laughs> and, and so like, like twenty minutes into the first corner, <laughs> and here we go, John Knox. Well, we're, yeah, we're talking about we're talking about Protestantism again. Um, but you know, like tried to enforce this moral community on the whole country, um, and you know, and sort of discipline society. Uh, and all these attempts across Europe sort of failed, of course. But um, now there's no way that Kate Forbes can do that. If she could do that, if she could launch a moral revolution in Scotland, and I'd, I'd vote for her, yeah. And, and you know, uh, <laughs> but but you know, I, I, I'll be it'll be interesting to see what she's willing to sacrifice. Do you know what I mean for for her religious views? And the secondary the, the matter of interest is just how uncontroversial she is. So I mean, she did an, she did a, a she's done a few interviews. She's a bit kind of she was kind of flavour of the month after the election because there was a feeling that there's a real possibility she could become the next first minister. Now she did a few interviews, including I think with the BBC's one of the BBC's politics podcasts, which was universally well received, where she also discussed her sort of religious convictions. Um, What's interesting about that is that uh, the culture war around the SNP and around the wider nationalist movement hasn't touched on her. Do you know what I mean? Hasn't almost hasn't noticed. So if you take someone like Joanna Cherry, she stood down from the NEC uh, the other day there. Now, um, obviously she has she has views that are controversial on, on a few issues, but she's broadly someone of the centre left. Right, she she broadly comes from that tradition, liberal, centre left. You know, she's in the kind of left of the nationalist movement for the last few decades. Kate Forbes doesn't come from that tradition. Kate Forbes is someone who comes well. She's in the Church of Scotland, Free Church of Scotland, as I understand it. I could be totally wrong here, but she's a, she's of that kind of uh, quite you know hard line Presbyterian outlook. She's very much politically part of the mainstream tendency in the SNP, the, the leadership tendency. But that's why she's avoided attacks from the left, because she's seen as close to Sturgeon. Yeah. 
which tells you something of the nature of that uh, of, of conflicts in the nationalist movement that even the fact that she's probably the most socially conservative figure in uh, in, in modern Scottish politics she's left unscathed by the whole culture war because of her proximity to Sturgeon. But I also, I mean, I, I don't think it's just about proximity to Sturgeon. I think it's really about proximity to that type of, like, cultural, political power. And so if you take someone like, let's take Joe Biden, right? Mm. <laughs> like, he ain't no, like, social liberal. I mean, uh, he has... There were plenty of accusations about his sexual conduct, about um, things that he said that were racist. Does anyone give a shit? No. 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 Like you, because it, the culture war is really about, in my view, is that there is part of this about solidifying, like a type of mm, establishment politics, and when there is an agenda there that props that up, then then people are untouchable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it very much works along the lines of, you know, the 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 whole ethos is basically, we have a, we have much of the ruling class today. Their 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 ruling idea is, um, the world is a bad place. This is what the ruling class tell you today. The world is a bad place because it's full of oppression. Mm. It used to be worse. But now it's getting better. It's getting better partly because of people like me, right? So this is this is this was more or less Joe Biden's speech upon becoming president, right? And it's getting better. The re but what's slowing us down, what's holding us all back, is that there is a an element of the population who are knuckle draggers, right? Like that that is now kind of the ruling ideology, and it is subscribed to by wide layers of society, but particularly kind of professional elements, middle-class elements and so on, um, who, part, of whose, um, part of whose social mission through NGOs and academia and the media and all these different institutions is to repulse these regressive attitudes in, in, in the wider public. Um, and that's very much the ideology in Scotland and that's very much the ideology in, in um uh, in America as well. I mean, maybe I have been out the loop and there is more criticism of this, but I saw that Joe Biden is doing the um, coronavirus growing in a Chinese lab chat, <laughs> right? So I've been a bit off social media just to give my brain the time to disintegrate into a different direction. But um, he is doing this, isn't he? He's sort of starting to say, like, we need to investigate the roots of where coronavirus comes from, and we think it may be grown in a Chinese lab. Yes, uh, but, like, I, people aren't doing what like because Trump did say the same thing, didn't he? I mean, has Donald Trump just been fucking gaslit by the entire nation? <laughs> Joe Joe Biden has has been remarkably similar to Donald Trump, um, you know, in 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 many respects uh, since he since he came to office, and this has not gone yeah. Yeah, it's gone basically without discussion. Yeah, like everyone just seems like really chill about it. But uh, I mean, I'm not defending Donald Trump here, but I am a little bit like, hmm, that's, that's interesting. This that's really interesting, does back yeah. up the theory about what um, the culture war is useful for. The main thing that seems to have changed is that Joe Biden is much more boring. 
than Trump. He's just like he just knows how to. He just has staff using Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Do you know? What I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you said that in such a kind of like despondent way. It's like, oh my god, he's got his staff doing his communications for him. He should be up at you know one o'clock in <laughs> at night tweeting away about Meryl Streep in the New York Times. After drinking like 12 cans of Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it how, uh, I, I, how Trump used to tweet from like five in the morning because he used to go to bed really early in a huff and then he would obviously be woken up by the urge to tweet at his enemies. Um, you identify with that, don't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, you got you to stop yourself from 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 hate tweeting early in the morning um so yeah there's none of that now uh you know biden just sort of i mean you couldn't let him on twitter you know people used to talk about trump's mental capacity but you know god knows how many kofifis would be coming out of uh joe biden's twitter account <laughs> by this point um so so on the um the election show and I was away doing, I think that some of the episodes are still probably, even though it's, the election's been and gone, I think maybe some of the episodes are still worth going back and watching if any of our listeners haven't seen them yet. Um, do you have any personal highlights? Uh, I mean, you, you won't be shocked to discover that I enjoyed the EU episode. Um where I discovered that the debates hadn't really moved on. Uh, they're basically still stuck in the same in the same place. I was on the last episode, of course, uh, and had a, a thrilling exchange with uh, with Graham Campbell. My highlight of the whole election show was that episode on class. Mm-hmm. The one we did um, that had Danny McGarvey and Rose Foyer on it. Um, and Bonnie Prince Bob and Ray from the editorial boards. That was by far my favourite episode. Enjoyed it loads. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just thought it was like the most interesting and the most sincere of all the episodes. I mean, I was disappointed on Bonnie Prince Bob's behalf um, that he didn't like get more votes in the election, but I think like having his presence during it was one of the more refreshing things about the whole sordid affair um, mm-hmm. but it's definitely if I was going to recommend one for people to, to check out it would probably be that one yeah no I think I think that was a really good discussion um, and I think it was a necessary one because again class just isn't really a concept that um, that exists in, in the electoral sphere in Scotland it's been quite effectively pushed out through a number of different ways. I mean, the SNP don't want to talk about social class. That's not their their type of politics. But like, you know, Labour talk about, Labour give out this general aura that there's something to do with class politics and, and their politics. And that makes it more real somehow than what the SNP yeah. is doing. The problem with that is just, it's like, well, it's Anasawa. And I remember what Labour like when they were in office. And it was remarkably similar to what the SNP are like, you know. It's it's, it's a repackaging of um, of that same, you know, very classless in its view sort yeah, of politics. Yeah, um, 
and you know Labour continued to sink in the in the election and I don't think that has anything to do with the salience of class politics I think it has everything to do with the salience of of the Labour Party um I mean it's quite an astonishing you know story from the election that it's quite astonishing like the defeats that Labour suffered down south as well yeah the partly um, pool result partly pool um I mean it, it, the Batley and Spen by elections coming up and it yeah. it looks entirely possible that Labour will lose there as well. Um, I mean, I think we can finally now say that this is this is the real deal. This is Labour following the example of social democratic parties from around Europe by just sort of disintegrating uh, generally. And like you were saying about, you know, I mean, Labour in England is going to start catching up with its position in, in Scotland, which is a huge historic uh development um so yeah and the other thing about the election shows by the way is just like do you know there was there was such a kind of like there was an opening for us to do it because it just i was just reminded how like how weak the scottish media presence has become and immediately after the 2014 um referendum there was kind of a lot of talk about how like it had spawned this whole other uh, like online alternative media space that seems largely to have disintegrated yeah. um, partly because the, the movement has declined, but also partly because the internet has changed. Um, and in that time though, uh, because there almost used to be this attitude of like, oh, the alternative media is replacing the old media. It's not, but the old media, the established media continues to decline in terms of viewing figures, in terms of readership, in terms of the commercial viability of newspapers. It's a very strange time to be doing anything in the kind of media environment because of that. I mean, I just, I do feel feel for journalists who have to, you know, write pieces that people will click on and mm. that, that being one of the driving factors of like, if you write about independence, then people will read it. Um, if you write about trade unions, like no one's going to read that. <laughs> Let's be honest. And I think that that is, I mean, that's really grim. Like it's very hard to get. I think in Scotland, like an analysis that's um, that's not part of that that industry. Do you know what I mean? It's not part of the click here, um, kind of format not just clickbait, but like, I mean, like the kind of low hanging fruit of the political topics. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's, I mean, I do really feel for journalists who like are kind of like trapped in that space. Mm -hmm. Of course, Speak if you want great analysis of <laughs> politics, you can visit our website at contour.co.uk. Indeed. Speaking of low hanging fruit, I understand that you've got your eye on uh a sport meets culture war story. <laughs> yeah, speaking of media, um, yeah, this I'm fascinated by this Naomi Osaka story. So Naomi Osaka is a tennis player who has withdrawn from the French Open um, after uh, basically refusing to take part in uh, press conferences, which, I mean, I personally think is a really fair position to have so she refused to take part in these um media conferences 
um, and do all that, you know, interviews, post-match analysis, but, um, and part of the reason that she gave is that um, she just found him, like, very mentally taxing, and I can see that, like, I mean, it's bad enough to, I mean, these people are elite athletes, like, this is what, and I can't imagine the amount of, like, discipline and, like, mental focus it must take to be an elite athlete, um, like, I did yoga this morning, and one of the positions was so hard that it made me want to cry, like, I'm so weak-willed when it comes to physical activity of that type, so, she says she doesn't want to take part in these press conferences. Um, and there's this huge backlash. So there's a massive backlash against her decision um, not to do it. You know, she says that like talking to the media triggered her anxiety. So she doesn't want to do these press conferences. And people on the internet went berserk about it and basically said, you know, this is what part of what you're paid for. This is part of the entertainment of sport. Like you have to take part. The organizers of the French Open, I believe, also kind of you know we're pushing her to take part and what's happened is that she has now withdrawn she's now pulled out of the um the french open entirely which you know i was like kind of on yourself do you know what i mean like i hate the idea of like these sports organizers holding out elite athletes just for entertainment and it all just seems like kind of a bit grim to me so i was like amazing good on you just tell people to go and shove it is one of my favorite like ripcord moments in life where I know in my back pocket I can always just be like I'm not doing it do you know what I mean but then in her statement about pulling out she I felt I felt like she had to pay this price which is becoming increasingly common which is she had to then open up and doing that sort of in scare verbal scare quotes open up about her own struggles with depression and um, not that there's anything to be of course there's nothing to be ashamed of but it's this idea of like you have to expose yourself you have to sell that part of your private life right that's a private thing um or a personal thing rather that people have to say well you know I've had mental health problems and this is part of why I'm pulling out and it's just, I, I felt sorry for her that she had to be so, to have to be so candid and not just to say, I don't want to do this. But there's something like about our culture that says, you know, if you're going to take that kind of action or talk about, you know, how stressful it is to do press conferences, then we need, we need more from you. We need to know that you've suffered so that you're qualified. Like somehow this, like suffering from mental health, uh, problems is like that's the qualification that's the caveat that allows you to make that decision do you know what I mean and I find it incredibly disturbing that that has become such a core part of what it means to be a public figure there's a real turnaround from what public life used to mean um, but it didn't mean performing your private life in front of a public fucking audience yeah, like I, I, I just think politics must be like the worst of that because everybody's got to have a fucking X Factor sob story now to go into politics. Yeah, yeah. Like, I will see it was hard for me because I, whatever it is, like, I'm, I was a, a, a bartender on like less than $10 an hour or 
I had this struggle growing up and it's like okay I respect that that's your individual story but it does not qualify you for public life some of my favorites include things like um I was the first person in my family to go to university right which has been getting said by middle-class centre-left politicians for about 50 or 60 years right um <laughs> as some kind of badge of atavistic uh, honour and of course the thing that can be said uh of so many people because of course that's our generation the university sector has expanded hugely in the last few decades right so that's true of me I don't know why people think that that's some sort of like uh you know salt of the earth descriptor another one is like my parents got divorced like when I was growing up you know it's like I so I know hardship you know it's like again that's extremely common you know this is a very modern phenomenon so I um had the privilege of getting an advanced copy of um a new book that's coming out by Jim Sellers and it's a it's a memoir it was his his political memoir and you know it starts at the beginning of his life and the death of his mother and when he's a child and you know what it's like to grow up in Ayrshire at that time in history have I ever seen Jim Sellers reference those personal tragedies no do I have absolute respect for him as a public intellectual yes because there's something about that generation of politician who understand that being in politics is about um, the uni- universal, there's a common denominator, there's a universal appeal in our class, like within the working class, and it is not to do with the hardship and tragedies that people suffer becoming currency. It's about finding like a common point in that peril where we can unite and actually overcome those hurdles together as a force, a historical force. It's not about like who has had the hardest life. And it, it also, as you say, it, um, it represents an interesting change in, in modern culture and, and kind of modern public psychology in general. So historically, human beings have always done confession, right? Whether it was to a priest, whether it was to... Um, you know, like a village elder or to, uh, you know, in, in earlier parts of the 20th century to like a, a psychologist in private or a therapist or whatever, human beings have always confessed and that's always been an important human ritual. But the decline of like public man, the decline of the public sphere and the elevation of the private sphere, of private feeling, of private intuition and so on has inverted our attitude about confession. So you don't get, you know, private confession, obviously, is still a big part of our culture. More and more people go to counselling and so on. But we now have this culture of public confession where people are expected to confess their emotions, their psychological state, their traumatic experiences. There's a huge currency and even a huge cultural expectation for people to publicly air their traumatic uh, experiences. And there's also an attitude completely... um, unfounded in any scientific literature that it will be healthy for you to air your traumatic experiences in a very public setting there's no reason to expect that to be the case that could fall in in any direction and it's a thing i've talked about before you know public confession became the most common form of literature 
in the sort of last 10 years and last 20 years probably on the internet is all all anyone wanted to to hear and i remember reading an article by a bunch of people uh who regretted ever making their public confessions especially on the internet and didn't understand that because they wrote a kind of heart-wrenching 3,000, 5,000 words, um, you know, public confession about, you know, sexual abuse, about other forms of trauma, about mental health, about eating disorders and so on. They didn't understand that once they put it out there, it would be out there forever. And that's all they'd be known for. And also didn't understand that the immediate catharsis one feels from doing that isn't long-term therapy. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're ultimately left alone again with your problems after you've made your public confession. Um, so yeah, I, I think it can be, I think it can be a really corrosive kind of attitude. And as you say, the growing expectation. And the thing that seems to have gone under the radar is the people who are suffering most are the people you hear from least, right? But there's no currency in the silence, so so they're literally forgotten. Like people who are experiencing, like who are on the fringes experiencing like huge mental hardships or material hardships have been actually silenced by the last 20 years of a culture that says, if you're poor, it's your fault. Like These are the people who, if you then speak out about that type of material hardship, then it's seen as a personal failure. Do you know what I mean? Like, that, and this is what like enrages me about it. But there's also this, like, I wanted to bring up this um, bit from Christopher Lash in The Culture of Narcissism. There's an amazing quote where he basically says, because what ultimately we're talking about is like, when you say um, confession, there is a ritual to confession of all types, like whether that is religious or spiritual or, um, among friends, loved ones, etc., is that confession has been about personal salvation. Right? It has been about personal salvation. And that's not what this is now. In, in culture of narcissism, Christopher Lash says, the contemporary climate is therapeutic, not religious. People today hunger not for personal salvation let alone for the restoration of an earlier golden age, but for the feeling, the momentary illusion of personal well-being, health, and psychic security. Like people are not looking for salvation; they're looking for like that fleeting moment of the release of confession, like the well-being of having gotten it off your chest. It's not part of a grander process about like. I, do you know what I mean like that the way that confession and religious life would have functioned and where we are now is that the and I'm not going to say that organized religion is without fault but I don't think that you can you know uh, really bottom out organized religion and have nothing to replace it Um, you know you can't just say like instead of priests let's all go with therapy it's not the same thing absolutely and and, and you know also that that catharsis that people are searching for from from the public confession um it's it's linked to this thing of the public conversation you know this has become a major cultural practice in the last couple of decades of 
really in the last 10 years in a big way, it's like we're always having a conversation about things, right? So around the Me Too movement, um, there was this kind of like, we need to have a conversation about men. We need to have a conversation about toxic masculinity. Um, you know, and around BLM, there were people who tried to steer it in that direction. As, long, as, as well as politicizing elements of that movement, you always had people around the side saying things like, we need to have a conversation about white people. We need to have a conversation about whiteness. We need to have a conversation about racism and, and so on. Now, these conversations achieve nothing, right? I mean, to the extent that it's a real conversation, a conversation between the powerful and the powerless results in the status quo <laughs> anyway, right? The, the conversation's meaningless. I don't think people, uh, what are we going to, there's also this idea, by the way, that we're engaged in some sort of like popular mass therapy session, right? Like if we talk through an issue like whiteness, right? At the end of it, we'll all have learned something or we'll all have come to some sort of conclusion. Any view of power will tell you that that's garbage, right? We're not, we're not actually suffering for a lack of knowledge and lack of information apart from anything else. The problem isn't enlightenment in that sense. But the latest conversation that we're having is about mental health. And that goes all the way from Oprah and, uh, and Harry and their show, uh, which I understand is getting a second series or whatever, where they're going to have a, a town hall meeting where we have the conversation about mental health, because that's going to that's gonna, that's gonna save the millions of people suffering in the mental health crisis. Town hall conversation. It's so, so old and folksy. Um, and that extends all the way from that to, to, to Scotland, where the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, but I love it that it's like so new world and then so old worldy, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland and the, the incoming moderator, you know, did his speech about mental health and then Prince William, the less fashionable prince, he, uh, he did his speech about mental health. Right. And then there's a point where both of them are congratulating each other for all the efforts they've made on mental health and, and, and organizing the conversation on mental health. You're just watching thinking this is peculiar. This is peculiar stuff. It's peculiar watching like the ruling class um, congratulating each other for hosting the conversation on, on mental health. So this is now this is the latest um, thing. And as I think we've discussed on this podcast before, like. The tragedy of this is that once the ruling elite have spent a year or 18 months on the conversation about mental health, we'll move on to something else. Nothing will have been solved, obviously. And then we'll move on to, I don't know, veganism or back to plastics or, or whatever. Plastics was a stillborn conversation a couple of years ago. Um, you know, or, or we'll back, we're back to kind of discussing with Greta Thunberg about the, uh, about the environment. Yeah. you know um and and nothing will have been solved there's this this ritual and the, and the ritual is holding up this ideology this ruling ideology of we're on a journey together things are bad now but they were worse before and we're all on a journey i towards. mean is that sort of like pseudo-religious nonsense hmm. um i mean the <clears throat> it, it frustrates me that like in this <clears throat> conversation about mental health like that people still do not name accurately the source of like a lot of mental anguish and it is I mean I hate to be a cliche but it is alienation 
like mm. that line from Jimmy Reed's speech about like he talks about how it's the feeling of despair and hopelessness where people have no real say in shaping their own destiny like that is where a lot of like mental pain and anguish comes from like that is the source and like since Reed made that speech it has just gotten worse like this is a political problem but people are not willing to like say well there is actually this is linked to the economic system that we are in and we've talked before on this podcast about the kind of medicalization of the human condition as well that like I, I do believe that like there is a place for like sadness and melancholia like within the human condition I'll be the first to admit that I'm a crazy broad um but I think that you can't medicalize like these feelings and that is what's happening is that you know there's a real pressure on doctors because of like scarce resources that if someone does have like a sense of despair and hopelessness is just to punt them on a prescription for antidepressants and then forget about them for 20 years mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and the way it's discussed like publicly is is it is as like a pathology it's sort of so in in, in prince william's speech it was like uh, oh the things we need to deal with are homelessness addiction and mental ill health so do you know what i mean it's it's just it's one of these problems which is a given it belongs to the community or to the more kind of like decrepit parts of the community for some reason. They yeah. need us to help them with this conversation. Um, and uh, yeah, there's never, there can never be a discussion about where this comes from. I mean, in the in, in Oprah and Harry's show, it was like <laughs> the people they're interviewing about mental health is like uh, uh, Lady Gaga and so on, right? I mean, it's celebrities after the folk who are on it. And the message is just kind of like, well, this is just a fact of human life. It happens to everyone, rich or poor alike. Again, not true. I mean, I think the rate for mental mental Ill health in Scotland is is twice as high in the most uh, uh, in, in the poorest areas and so on, which is just fucking obvious. Um, but yeah, there's never an attempt to to, to find out what the source or the lo- or the location of this of this problem yeah. is. Yeah. Um. I think that's us. I think, I think that's us running out of steam. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's also like ten to one, so going for talking for some time. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks everyone for listening, and thanks for um, you know, tuning in after the Cat David hiatus. Um, but we will be back on a regular basis, and we've got an exciting summer program coming up for a contour the website is being relaunched and we'll have more details about that in due course indeed indeed and i'm looking forward to some of the some of the exciting guests we've been talking about um and yeah we'll be back to back to regular program well you know as regular as we can (laughs) deal with um okay Thanks very much and bye. See ya.